We're currently in week two of our series entitled Headlines. We, uh, it's the second time we've done this series, and it's really just a desire to have a conversation around things that are happening maybe in the world. This, this year, we've decided to kind of zero in on local uh, conversations, um, not just even random news articles that have popped up over the last year, but issues that maybe uh, are important to the life of our community. Many of these issues are a big uh, part of our bigger conversation as a church, uh, specifically uh, around some of our community development work that we do on the West Side and with the Little Bottoms Free Store. So there's a variety of intersections uh, around these issues. Uh, today, we're going to continue that series. Last week, uh, we talked about human trafficking and prostitution. I, I do encourage the podcast if you missed it. Uh, we had Hannah Estabrook come and share. She coordinates Catch Court. I encourage you to check out the podcast. Um, this week, we're going to um, deal with uh, immigration and talk about it from a variety of different perspectives. We have a guest with us, uh, Tyler, uh, um, who's going to be sharing. I just lost him. Oh, there you are. You moved. Well, anyways, we're going to have him come up in just a little bit, sorry. And uh, before we do, I just want to spend a couple of moments reflecting. Um, one of the things we try to do each week is spend uh, some point in the service, and every week's a little different, uh, in some biblical reflection and just kind of wrestling with this issue from a theological, even personal place. But then also then bringing in somebody or, or covering it from a place where we can learn and we can figure out kind of what's going on. Um, so uh, I, I've seen a, a, ver, a, a meme on Facebook a couple different times. Uh, I, I, this is becoming a trend, me sharing a meme. Uh, but this is a meme that I, this, there's a variety of ways to say this meme, but this is, might be my favorite because the kid's face is so great. Um, but it says, so you vote to kick out all immigrants and refugees, but your church has fundraisers for mission trips to the same places those people are from. Anyone seen a meme of, of this variety? Anyone? Yeah, maybe a few of you. Uh, I've seen it pop up on my feed a couple different times. And uh, it's interesting. I'm not saying that I 100% agree with the, the logic of this, but it makes, it makes you think. It gives me something to think about. Um, and here's why. The last two uh, international mission trips that I've been on, uh, where you go on a short-term trip and you're gonna, you, know, you raise money and then you go and you serve, they were to a place called Matanda de Luz um, in Honduras. Our previous church um, would go there. This is a picture I took. It's this beautiful place. It's this orphanage. It's up on top of a hill, um, and it's a great ministry. The organization that runs it's based out of Columbus. Uh, it, it, I've been twice. The church uh, in Athens that we came from has gone for the last, I don't know, if like seven, eight, ten years, every other year. So they've gone many times. They've built a long-term relationship with this ministry. And so I've gone twice, and uh, just fantastic memories there. Well, I was thinking about this meme because recently, in the last year, there was a, a boy who grew up in the, or spent some time in this uh, orphanage in Matani de Luz, and uh, he uh, kind of graduated from the program, became a young adult. When I was there, I, I, I imagine he would have been around. He might have been a middle schooler or a preteen or maybe even a teenager, so he wouldn't have been with the kids, but I, we went and spent some time with some of the older kids in this off-site, and so I probably ran into him. I didn't, I didn't know him. I didn't meet him. I didn't speak Spanish, so I didn't connect uh, on a deep level with a lot of the kids. I was just really good at carrying concrete. And, um, but he would have been there, and he, he, he eventually, you know, he grew up, became a young adult. Uh, they helped him get a job. He, you know, it's a great program, so he, go, he becomes a cook. Maybe you guys are familiar with this story, because um, it was recently published in the Dispatch. He becomes a cook, and uh, he witnesses a crime by a local gang. 
Now, in Honduras, there's a couple things that are stacked against this young man. His name's Edwin. A couple things that are stacked against him. One, he's, he's black, and he's from a particular uh, part of um, uh, immigrant from the Virgin Islands area. And uh, I, I think I'm remembering this correctly. And, and so there's this sort of like, he's already a second-class citizen in Honduras, just racially. There's this segregation, this sort of class system. And then also, this orphanage is specifically kids for kids who have been affected by HIV. And so he has this even lower-class symbol, you know, because he's affected by, he's infected with HIV, he lost his parents to it, uh, lost his mom, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's fatherless. And, um, and so the idea of a gang taking out somebody who is black and of this particular race and HIV, which there's tons of stigma in that community, like not a big deal. And he witnesses this crime. So he, he, just, he, he just knows that his life is in danger because they start asking for him and he decides he has to leave. And so Edwin travels by foot, mostly by foot through Honduras. He hitchhikes through Guatemala. He gets on the train um, uh, in Mexico called the Beast. Here's a picture I found online um, where people are just, you know, hopping on this train however they can. He takes this train through Mexico. He crosses the border into America illegally where he eventually ends up in Georgia. He's detained, he says, uh, predominantly in solitary confinement. Um, in a facility in Georgia, Georgia for two months. And then after two months, um, they are able to get figure out he had a sponsor here in Columbus, partly because of the connection with Matana de Luz, the ministry that's ran out of Columbus. And because of this uh, sponsor, they, they, they ship him to Columbus. And last I heard, he was living right here in Grandview Heights. So this is interesting, isn't it? An individual I would have crossed paths on a mission trip is now... I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. A couple, couple blocks away. Uh, my friends, uh, Virginia, they run an advocacy group for immigrants called Avanza Together. They've been working with Edwin. They did a fundraiser so he could afford a, a lawyer. And um, uh, some friends gave to that even because they had met Edwin through this various mission trips. And uh, I tried to get connected through my friend. We were texting over the last couple of weeks to try to figure out if I could even get him to come and share through a translator or if I could meet with him. And it just didn't work out um, uh, because I don't speak Spanish. Figuring out the logistics of, you know, three people and, um, and, and everyone engaged in that work is, like I said, last week around immigration, fairly busy. Uh, so it didn't work out. But I do hope at some point to sit down and have a conversation. And so, you know, you got this meme here. And you can imagine why I kind of, you know sitting with this a little bit. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm wrestling with it. I reached out to the organization, Matani de Luz, and I said, I'm assuming, Matani de Luz, that your official policy isn't, you know, you know let's support people who want to make it to America, um, because I could get them in all kinds of trouble with the local Honduran government, and it's not really their mission. Their mission is to make Honduras and advocate and decrease stigma so that people can, who are growing up in this orphanage can live in Honduras and have the best Honduran life possible. And so even this organization, it doesn't quite, quite match up with some of the difficulties. So when we talk about these issues, one of the things that I recognize is there's, a, there's an immense amount of complication. It can become messy. And in our current climate, it's fairly charged. There's a great amount of division around it. So I wanna, if we, though, set that aside, if we set aside the sort of the political climate and what's the best action, what does it mean to be a nation, and what does it mean to all of these I don't know. I don't always have the answers for those. And we just asked the question, okay, what's the theological reflection on immigration? Well, here's the thing that I want to suggest to you today. It might be complicated in how we, what's best in the world, but theologically, not a complicated issue. Old and New Testament, 
uh, fairly clear. And so before we get into the sort of the details of what's happening locally, um, I do want to just spend a couple of moments in theological reflection. And I want to start in kind of an unlikely place. One of the things, the, the scriptures have tons to say about what it means to treat foreigners, immigrants, uh, refugees. There's an immense amount of conversation around it. In fact, I would say that it's probably the big story in Scripture. The people of Israel were foreigners. We'll look at that in a second. But there's also this other side of the coin, other side of the story that's even, I think, in some ways more fascinating. One of the places we need to start is recognizing this, that the God of Israel and the God that Christians follow, that God, as we're told in Scripture, was in many ways a wanderer an immigrant, a foreigner. This is one of the sort of the lenses that we're given to understand God. And in a lot of different ways, there's a sense that like even Jesus coming, the incarnation, like there's a certain, I leave one place and I come to another. But, but it's even throughout the Old Testament and often in our own lives, God kind of is this sort of nomadic individual who shows up. Have you ever experienced this before? You just show like, where, where'd you come from? And who are you, God? Like, where did, and this is one of the pictures. So one of the earliest stories of the Jewish faith is, is, uh, is Abraham. He's, the, he's being called out by God right after the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And he's sent, well, one of the times Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are hanging out. And these three, these three men show up. This story is sort of the pillar of, 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 of hospitality, this conversation around hospitality. And uh, these three men show up. And we're told in the text, if you read it, Genesis 18, that, it's, um, that these, these men represent in some supernatural, mystical way God. It says God showed up to Abraham. But Abraham doesn't know that. They just look like three men who showed up. And Abraham, being the father of our faith and this great example for all of us, he shows radical hospitality to God. He doesn't know it necessarily at the time, but he shows, he welcomes him in, he offers him food, he offers him to stay, you know, this, this beautiful thing. So God always like shows up as a stranger on the doorstep, which I think is what the New Testament writer had in mind when in Hebrews they wrote this. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by, doing, by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. It's this idea that Something about the divine, something about who God is and even the angelic world and all of this sort of stuff, like identify so closely with the, the role, the, the person of, of the immigrant that it's almost, this is what I think this passage is saying. It's like, if a stranger, if someone walks up, if someone knocks on your door, so to speak, just hypothetically, someone knocks on your door and they're like, wow, the, I wonder what country they're from. Well, be careful because that might be the divine at your doorstep. Because if the divine showed up at your doorstep, you'd probably assume they were an immigrant because they'd just be so different from us. Do you see that? It's like, you should, you should probably be pretty good at loving immigrants because if God ever showed up in your life, it probably will feel a lot like an immigrant who showed up in your life. You're like, what well, is this strange person with these strange customs so different from me? The word here, show hospitality to strangers, is five words for one Greek word. It's a filio xenias. Um, it's a compound word. Philo meaning love, like brotherly love, Philadelphia. And xenos meaning stranger, foreigner. Stranger, foreigner. To show hospitality to strangers, it, the Greek word is to love strangers, foreigners, aliens, immigrants. Part of this is a cultural thing. Uh, and this is where I want to end in sort of the theological reflection. There's so many passages that we can spend time with, but this is kind of where I want to end. I want you to just wrestle with a thought with me. 
The Greek word for xenos, the Greek word for strange, it means stranger, it means immigrant, but it also means guest, which I find interesting. Same Greek word can mean immigrant, but it can also mean guest. Now, when we say guest, we don't mean the same thing as immigrant, do we? Those are vastly different words with different connotations. But let's just imagine that we had the same English word for both, just as a thought exercise. Because in the ancient culture, to be an immigrant meant you would ultimately be someone's guest. You were a guest in that country, you were a guest at their house, this sort of thing. Um, that's not how we view the, the, the process at all. But imagine with me, when we say, um, I'm going to have a few guests over, that means something. So imagine, imagine you're going to have a few guests over. Who are those people? Just take a second and think what do they look like? Do you know their names? Who would you be inviting over to your house? I hope I'm included in that list. I'd love to come over sometime. When you say, I'm going to have a few guests over. Who are those people? Now, what if I said, I'm going to have a few immigrants over? Same people? Huh. Just think through. Maybe. Maybe some of them are the same. Maybe not. Now imagine that you're going to have a few guests over, the original group of people, but you, in the English, the word was the same. It was the similar, and so you're having a few immigrants over, same group of people. Just a way to kind of think through. I encourage you to spend some self-reflection. What part of that makes you uncomfortable? What part of that doesn't make you uncomfortable? Um, Am I okay saying that certain people can be guests, but then I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of other people being guests, in my home even? but certainly in our country. Just as a tool, just as an invitation into some self-reflection of how we use language and what that means. Throughout the scriptures, a variety of other passages. Do I have any? I don't have my notes in front of me. Do I have any other verses up here? Yeah, we'll end with this one. So here's Leviticus. This becomes very clear-cut. This becomes very obvious. So there's very clear... Uh, rules in the Old Testament that simply say this, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In summary, I think there's this really clear sense that God was, identifies with a foreigner. Jesus was in many ways a refugee even before he, he grew into a, a man, an adult, and um, even the early church viewed themselves as foreigners. And so there was this logical assumption. It's only fair then that we show the same kind of love and respect to other people. So we're going to talk about what that looks like uh, here locally. So Tyler, if you want to come on up, hopefully I didn't create too much tension for you to, to engage with. Um, but uh, Tyler works with Chris. And uh, I'll give you, you can, we can have a seat. You can have a seat here. Sure. Yeah, or either one. It doesn't matter. Um, Tyler works. Oh, I've got to get my iPad. With Chris, which is community, I keep forgetting the acronym. Community Refugee and Immigration Services. Why don't we start by uh, introducing yourself and uh, uh, telling us a little bit of how you got involved in this work. Okay. Um, Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me this morning. My name is Tyler. Um, I have worked with Chris for about three years now, um, and I got started there actually through a volunteer service corps. Um, immediately after college, I uh, worked with an organization called Global Ministries that partnered with an organization overseas um, that did some work with refugees and migrants in Morocco. And so I, I moved to Morocco for a couple of years, um, and that's really made 
obviously had an impression on me, um, made a pretty good shift in, in how I think about immigration, how I think about immigration in a global sense, migration in a global sense, um, but also what it meant to be welcomed in a context where I was very much out of place. Um, so I, I finished my two years there and um, came back to the United States and this organization had a, a partnership with um, Church World Service. And Church World Service is uh, one of the nine national agencies that does refugee resettlement in the U.S. Um, Church World Service, uh, along with those other nine agencies, does that by having local affiliate agencies on the ground who provide the services um, when refugees arrive in a particular city that's usually independent organization fulfills those day-to-day requirements. And so in Columbus, Church World Service affiliate is Chris. And so there was kind of a natural continuation, although the, the type of work I was engaged with and, um, and seeing day-to-day was very, very different. Um, it felt like a making things real at home, sort of. Um, so I, I worked there for a year as a, as a volunteer, more or less, with a program similar to AmeriCorps. It was not AmeriCorps, but similar. Um, and then was lucky enough to be hired on after that. So been with Chris ever since. So then Chris works as Church World Service local agency. Uh, what exactly does Chris do? So what's, uh, briefly, help us understand, like, what are the services? You mentioned that we do services. What are these sure. services? Sure. So... Um, and we're talking specifically refugee resettlement here because we have many other services beyond that. Um, The resettlement period when someone comes into the country is 90 days long. And so that is how long our staff has intensive case management with someone who's just arriving to Columbus. Um, So our work actually starts before someone comes to Columbus. We start, we hear that they're coming probably two to four weeks out. Um, if they have family listed, we will contact that family or, or friend um, and let them know that they're coming, coordinate with them. Um, if, for instance, it's a spouse or a parent, we probably don't have to look for housing. They're going to live with that person when they arrive. That makes their job easier because the next step then is usually to find housing. Um, and we're doing that on a, a very, very limited budget. So um, every Refugee that comes into the country receives a one-time grant of $1,175. Um, so if it's a couple, it's twice that. But when we take that money, that's what's given to us to spend on their behalf on services. And so think about uh, someone coming to the airport. We're to look for a house for them. Um, we go to a landlord and say, we have someone coming to the country who wants to rent an apartment or we on their behalf uh, want to get this apartment. And they say, okay, tell me about their rental history. Well, they're not in the country yet. There's no rental history. And they say, okay, well, what's their source of income? What's their monthly income? Well, they're not in the country yet. They don't have a source of income. Many landlords will say, okay, bye. Um, But others will say, all right, well, give me a deposit in like two months right up front. If you know of a place where you can pay a deposit in two months right up front with $1,175, let me know. We could really use that resource. Um, 
In addition to finding housing, I, I dwell on housing because it tends to be one of our biggest challenges. But I, I think it's just across the board, you know, yeah, biggest af- challenge right now. Affordable but, yeah. housing is an issue that intersects with a lot of... Yeah, with yeah. our uh, free stores, Alyssa tells me all the time, like our number one issue for the moms we're working with is about every week somebody's like, I might lose my house, we get kicked out, and I can't find another place. So, yeah. yeah no, I'm not absolutely. surprised. Um, we then, through those 90 days, kind of get people connected in ways that are going to help set them up for the future. So um, simple things like helping people get social security cards that's required um, to do pretty much anything else. Um, We help enroll people in public assistance that they qualify for. Um, A lot of times that means enrolling in our English or employment classes as sort of a a work site um, for refugees the work assignment attached to public assistance is going to English classes and working with an employment counselor at our office. Um, so getting people enrolled in those services uh, at Chris, um, help connecting people with medical services. Um, if they have uh, specialized health needs, we can help out with that. Um, helping show people how to navigate public transportation, for instance. Um, helping to connect people to jobs that fit with their abilities and their interests and their skills, um, and also will be sustainable, um, enough of a living to get by day to day. Um, And then just as things come up, you know, every single person that walks through our doors uh, has a different set of needs, a different set of preferences. Um, And so we really treat people as individuals. Um, Our mission statement speaks to these two side-by-side ideas of um, self-sufficiency and successful integration and sustainable self-sufficiency and successful integration into the central Ohio community. Um, But those two things are variable and they mean something different for every person that walks through our doors. Um, So trying to provide individualized services to connect people with what they need to be successful in Columbus. So, Do you want me to talk beyond refugee resettlement or we want to stay here for a minute? Let's, let's hold on. I just want to, when I, I threw out some questions I wanted to chat about, he said, this is a two-hour training that we do. And I was like, oh, well, we don't have two hours. Wouldn't that be fun, though, friends? Um, on the Take Action card, it's called Good Neighbor Training. It's one of the options. We might talk about it later. So if you want, we're not going to be able to just cover everything. You know, it's just in two hours probably doesn't cover everything. So let's pause there for a second and ask just a step back question that'll help. Because even like in my opening talk, I probably muddled some of this or it gets muddy and it gets messy. Can you explain to us the difference, some of the words that are thrown out? You, you have refugees. So you just described some of the services you provide for refugees. You got this bigger, broader term, immigrant. And then now we're hearing things about like people seeking asylum. What, help us differentiate. What are we talking about? What's the vocabulary happening there on a practical or legal? Or like what, what do those words mean? Sure, good question. Um, so immigrant, like you said, is the broad, broad term. That is anyone who is in the U.S. who is not a national of the U.S. Um, so... That covers a lot of different statuses, a lot of different categories, if you want to put people in categories. Um, Refugee refers to someone who, um, for fear of persecution, has fled their country of origin. Um, And that is for fear of persecution or violence based on their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. That is a, an internationally recognized legal designation, 
And when people are given legal refugee status, that is conveyed by the United Nations, um, an office called the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR. Um, and so people who flee their country or find themselves outside of their country um, go to a UN office, say, I'm unsafe in my home country, I can't go back, I need protection, I need help. They're basically coming to the international community and saying, I need some protection. Um, when we talk about asylum seekers, that term is, is a little bit more confusing um, because that can refer to anyone who is seeking protection based on the things that we talked about, um, but either hasn't had a chance to apply for it yet or has applied but hasn't gotten a response yet. Um, what's confusing about it is that an asylum seeker may be coming to the international community and saying, I need refugee status for this protection, or they may be coming to a specific country's government, like the US federal government, and saying, I need protection from the US. Um, and so that's a lot of what you hear about along the southern border, is people coming, fleeing a lot of times the same things that would give someone refugee status, but instead of asking the international community, saying, I'm here at the US, I need help from the US. Um, and so someone who is an asylum seeker may be granted political asylum by the US and become an asylee, um, or if they're coming to a United Nations office, they may be granted refugee status and then they're a refugee. This gets a little muddled, um, also, because people sometimes define these in different ways, and and I can't really, really yeah. disagree. We don't with all someone. agree on what things yeah, mean. I, yeah, I can't really disagree with someone who says a refugee is anyone who's seeking refuge. That makes sense. Yeah, grammatically. But legally, the internationally accepted definition is that someone's been given refugee status. You know, been approved by the United Nations. They were shown to be who they are. That they are who they say they are. They're fleeing what they say they're yeah. fleeing, and that they really are unsafe to go back. So there's a lot of, maybe this isn't in my notes, so you can just say no, but there's a lot of conversation around the southern border and people seeking asylum. Are, are there cases where individuals coming up through the, the, the southern sort of route that are going the refugee route through the United Nations? And if, or what, what's, is there a disconnect there, or do you have any, and you can say you don't have any thoughts, I didn't prepare you for that. Not usually, um, because refugees who come to the U.S. come through a specific process, this resettlement process that I talked about, um, and that looks very different than um, coming directly to the country that you're hoping to be protected in. So you go to U.N., you get a refugee status, they place you in a receiving country. Is that the idea? Let's, so taking a step back again, when you go to the UN... We're going to figure this out, friends. Yeah. It's, it's complicated, and it's different in different parts of the world, which is sure. where it gets even more complicated. The UN says, okay, you're a refugee. Um, at that point, there are three sustainable options that have been identified. Um, a, a refugee may be placed in a refugee camp. You hear a lot about that. They may just be in a city. Um, there, there are urban refugees who, you know, there may not be a camp in that area, or that's just not how that country runs it. They're still, they still have refugee status. Um, so th we're talking about like 26 million people okay. in the world that, that, who have refugee status. 26 million people currently through the UN legal process have, have refugee, refugee status. status. Yes. 
Um, so the first choice for everyone involved is voluntary repatriation. If you had to flee your home because it wasn't safe, your first choice is going to be that your home becomes safe and you can go back, right? That's best case scenario for everyone involved. That's not always possible. Um, the second choice would be to integrate into that home country. Um, there may be a shared language, there may be a similar culture. That's not always possible. A lot of countries don't have laws or economies that allow for a future. You may not be allowed to work, you may not be allowed to pursue education, you may not be allowed to freely move around the country. Um, or there may just not be opportunity. And so the UN identifies the most vulnerable cases for resettlement to a third country, a country removed entirely from where they've been, from that part of the world. Um, but people who are resettled make up less than 1% of the world's refugee population. Hmm. So 26 million people, we're talking about it, less than 1% of that. And so when we're talking about people resettled to the United States, we're talking about a fraction of less than 1% of the world's refugee population. Um, and so is that, that number has gone down, correct? That number has gone down significantly. Like yeah. from 100 and... What, what, or what's... It's know. different every year. So the, the president, uh, in consultation with Congress, uh, as our system is established, is to set a number for every federal fiscal year. Um, and so historically, our federal ceiling has been over 200,000 before. Um, it has been really high under both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. Um, I think the historic average is about 95,000 if you calculate out all the fluctuations. Um, the last three years have been the all-time low. Each year has been an all-time low for the ceiling. Um, we... A couple years ago, it was set at 110,000. Um, that was dropped when the administrations changed to 50,000, um, which was dropped further to 45,000. And of those 45,000, less than half actually came to the country. So the reality was about 22,400, something like that, um, which was the lowest number in US history. Um, and then this year, that we're actually just about to finish up because we run on the federal fiscal calendar, um, was 30,000 was our ceiling, so our maximum. Um, and they have, there, there have been people at the federal level that have floated a number of zero for the coming year. Um, so things are just kind of in flux and unknown. Um, I think there is a bit of a, an attempt to devalue refugee resettlement, what that means to the U.S. and U.S. history and U.S. culture. Um, and that's, that has affected things pretty significantly, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and these are all different conversations. You got the, the national conversation on the southern border. This is, that's a different conversation than the refugee resettlement with, through the U.N. I mean, they're similar. Different but related. But they're, they're connected, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, you don't have to have uh, an individual doesn't have to have one opinion that covers all of these things, right? Absolutely. So you can have a, yeah. you can have a nuanced look. Absolutely. So specifically with refugees, this is one of your guys' primary focus. Let's spend some time there. What, what is that? Um, what are the numbers? You've got 26 million. The number gets smaller in regards to how many get resettled and the number how many come to even the United States. Well, how many are ended up in Columbus or how many is Chris serving? 
So three years ago, we resettled 833 people in one year. Um, the next year, it dropped to about 680, which was honestly higher than most in the country. Um, the year after that was, th I want to say, 320-something. Um, this year, we're between 200 and 300. Um, the last couple weeks and looking ahead the next month and a half to two months, no one. Um, so that has definitely been a shift at our office. Um, there was a time when we were resettling about eight, 100 people a month. Um, and now we might, we might see 20 in a good month. Um, so things were growing. We had taken on staff um, when things were cut. Uh, Columbus went from three refugee resettlement agencies to two. Um, one called World Relief closed its doors. Um, Chris, our agency, and us together, which is the other one, had to shed staff at that point. I think we lost eight or nine staff members at that point um, and have continued to kind of slowly downsize as programs get smaller and smaller over the last couple years. Um, so who we serve, you know, keeping in mind that what we do is not just the resettlement piece, there's still a lot of work to be done with communities here in Columbus. Um, but that can be harder when our capacity is decreased by these kind of national cuts. Yeah. So um, then we're kind of... We're going to run out. We're, I told you at the beginning, we're going to run out of time, friends. We can't cover everything. Um, there is a, a way to, to send questions. I'm not sure how many we'll get to, but we'll, we'll see. If you want to text, I'll check here in a little bit um, if we have any questions we haven't covered. Just, I really have kind of two questions you can share maybe briefly, or, or maybe if not, that's fine too. We can hang out. Because um, they're questions I think part of the, we, we wrestle with in the bigger nation or community. Um, you say one of your goals is integrate. So what do you mean by integrate? Um, do people need to sort of shed their customs, their culture when moving to America? Is that, is that, or is it, you know, what does it look like to integrate and still keep cultural or custom identity that you brought with us? What does that, what does that look like as you guys work with individuals or even, you know, help, help us understand what, it, what integration looks like or is expected? Sure. It's, it's my opinion that no, no one should be leaving their culture behind. Um, I think that's it's a great opinion. part of the vibrancy of Columbus and of the U.S. is, you know, the melting pot. Everyone brings a flavor, and those together make up the overall uh, composition. Um, so you sometimes hear uh, people make a. a comparison between assimilation and integration. Okay. Assimilation being totally leaving behind everything and um, trying to mimic exactly what you find in a new place and integration being making yourself comfortable in this new context but with by bringing with you um, the old context and um, some of the ways of doing things and potentially adapting or, uh, you know, reworking that into uh, a new environment, but a new environment that can be shaped by old practices in the same way that you can be shaped by that new environment. Um, that's at least the way I understand it. Keep in mind, 
I'm a white guy from central Ohio, um, someone who's actually gone through this transformation would probably give a much better and more in-depth answer to that question. But that's the way I see it, and that's kind of the way I see our work happening. We try to connect people with resources in the community um, that aren't saying you have to change everything about what you believe and how you work and how you work your day-to-day -day life because you're in the U.S. now. Through refugee resettlement, people don't usually choose the U.S. Um, people don't usually have a choice. They say, yes, I'm willing to resettle, and the UN or the US says, okay, you're resettling to the US then. Um, so it's not like people are clamoring to come to the US via refugee resettlement. That's a choice that's made for them. Um, and so we do a lot trying to connect people with communities in place. Columbus has the second largest Somali population in the US. Um, we have the largest Bhutanese refugee population in the US. We have growing Congolese population, a decent sized Iraqi population. There are resources within those communities um, that I'm probably not even aware of, um, but can really help someone feel welcome and feel at home in what is a very foreign and oftentimes very scary environment. So, you know, from your perspective, uh, we have these large populations, refugee communities, you know, white male from Northwest Ohio, so not even Central Ohio. Um, what is, and you say, in, from this perspective, like, people are bringing gifts, things that are good and that we can experience. What is your advice for someone like me or those in our community? It's like, what does it mean to be able to appreciate or interact with or encounter the good things that refugees who are resettling are experiencing? I like food. That's, uh, that's my first go-to. There's some awesome refugee and immigrant-owned businesses in Columbus, and a lot of those are restaurants. Um, we have a list at Chris of, you know, it's obviously not comprehensive because there are so, so many, but there are areas of Columbus that were pretty economically dead that refugees moved into because of the lower cost of living, and suddenly there's a new vibrancy to it. Um, we, our office is on 161 in northeast Columbus, um, and we're not far off of Nor Morse Road in northeast Columbus. Um, that area has developed so many um, businesses, refugee-owned businesses, immigrant-owned businesses, restaurants, that other economic activity, you know, chain stores, gas stations, grocery stores, have started opening up in the area now, recently, um, because it's become an em economically vibrant place. Um, there was a report done by the city of Columbus in 2015 that looked specifically at the economic impact of refugee resettlement in central Ohio. And what it found was something like $1.6 billion worth of economic activity that can be traced to refugee resettlement. Um, refugees are more than twice as likely as the general population to start a business. So really high entrepreneurship rates, um, higher education rates, uh, workforce participation rates on par or higher than the general population. Um, so, you know, even selfishly, there are a lot of reasons why the U.S. should be wanting people who are coming to this country to create and to give and to offer things that you've never seen before. If, is anybody ever eaten Somali food or Nepali Surely food? Surely a few. Yeah, right? there's a few people in here. It's really good. 
um, and not something I would have interacted with probably in a different city even in, in the U.S. So, so as Christians, there's a sense of like, okay, we should have a heart for immigrant, especially refugees, you know, uh, regardless, you know, there's maybe politics and how we go about that, okay, but Christians, you know, biblically should have a heart for immigrants. But it's not so much like they need our help, we should have compassion, and then we have to just provide for them the rest of their lives. It's, you're saying that there's a significant amount of like just self, significant number become self-sustaining, but also contribute to the larger society financially and I mean, these are taxes that we're talking about. Absolutely. Refugees don't live off of the taxpayer dollar. Refugees are taxpayers. From day one when they arrive, they are taxpayers. Um, And so, yes, I I think compassion plays a huge role. These are literally people who had to flee their home and cannot go back. Um, So there is that sort of humanitarian piece to it. But once people are here... It's such an asset to our community, in my opinion, um, that that yes, there there are so many reasons to to want people here. So, just a couple questions that we got via text. Thanks, friends. Um, one is you mentioned the ninety day period. What does follow up beyond that look like with Chris? So, usually at the end of that ninety days, people are enrolled in one or more of our other programs. Like I mentioned, we have English language and employment programs. Um, we have uh, wellness programs, we have a mentoring program. Um, a lot of times someone is involved in one or more of those. Um, we also have programs for seniors, we have programs for young families, especially uh, with children with developmental delays. Um, we have immigration legal services, so there are two immigration attorneys on our staff um, who consult with anyone on a day-to-day basis. Um, and they take, take walk-ins twice a week. So we may not see someone for 10 years, and then they come back with an immigration question um, after those 10 years. Um, with it being an individualized approach, what follow-up looks like really depends on what that person needs or wants or is looking for. So we may, after 90 days, never see someone again. They don't need us or they found services elsewhere, and that's great. Yeah. Um, but if they do... That's great, too, and we have all these other services that we can offer. Um, And like I said, not just to refugees, but to immigrants, asylee, and refugee populations that are here in Columbus. Um, People from all different backgrounds and statuses um, can participate in our Victims of Crime Assistance Program, helping guide people through the criminal justice system. Um, Our mentoring program works with middle and high school youth from all different backgrounds. Um, So... Follow-up varies um, based on that individualized approach. So uh, I'm going to take this question over Senate, sorry, um, and I think this is what you're asking. With everything that's sort of happening, the de- decrease in intake, maybe even the, 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 the national conversation, some of the rhetoric that's being passed around, what's sort of the, um, how does that impact the emotional well-being of refugees who are already settled? Is there, uh, based on maybe your guys' follow-up, is, is there, yeah, I don't know if there, you have an answer to that. It's hard for me to speak to that not coming from that background. Sure. I, I can sort of anecdotally talk um, based on some conversations I've had with colleagues. Much of our staff comes from refugee and immigrant backgrounds, which yeah. is a huge asset to our organization yeah. um, because of the experience that that brings and the language capacity and the ability to really connect with the people we serve. Um, and so I think... 
overseas, there is a lot of, you know, the U.S. has a presence everywhere. Um, U.S. media has a presence everywhere. The American dream, land of opportunity, these are things that aren't just discussed in the U.S., they're, they're global ideas. Um, and so these ideas that people have of what the U.S. is going to look like and what they're going to find when they get here can be a little skewed sometimes. Um, and, and I know everyone's experience is very, very different based on who they interact with. Um, and even based on whether or not they speak English and understand the comments behind them at the checkout line, right? Mm. Um, I, I remember talking to one of our caseworkers who was, I don't remember if it was the grocery store or the doctor's office or what, but um, she was telling me about sitting there with these clients and thinking, you know, thank God these people don't speak English because that couple over there is being so rude mm. about them. Um, but we get people who speak English fluently. Um, and if they don't, when they arrive, they will in a few years, probably. Um, so I can't speak to exactly how that affects people, but it does affect people. Um, and, you know, it's not just the words, it's the policies. Family reunification is a huge issue that ties into refugee resettlement. So um, we have mothers whose children are overseas and have been for years. And, you know, this three-year-old Somali girl is not a security threat. So the idea that we can't take people from Somalia anymore because of security threats is greatly affecting this couple who's here without their three-year-old. Hmm. Um, hasn't seen her since she was three months old. Um, for a variety of reasons. There are a lot of reasons why families can get separated. Um, but when you aren't letting refugees into the country, then you're basically saying your elderly parent or your child or your spouse shouldn't be here, even though you're here and this is your home, your family is separated. That's economically difficult. That's emotionally difficult. Um, we, we had uh, a guy recently who has been separated from his wife and son for four years. When he was resettled, his wife was pregnant. So he, on his own dollar, flew back to Kenya because their process has just stalled. They haven't been denied for any reason, but nothing's moving forward. So he flew back to Kenya to meet his now four-year-old son. Mm. Um, that can't be easy. Mm. Um, so it has a real impact on people in this community when these sort of policies are in place or when someone refuses to hire someone because of an accent or um, when they don't accept refugee documentation or give someone a hard time because they don't speak English totally fluently. You know, there are all these little things that can happen in day-to-day -day life that'll make it harder um, for someone, whether it's a national policy or the person behind you at the checkout line. And so when you, the, some of the, you know, you have these clear-cut services, but then Chris is, is in some ways providing these wraparound as things come up, as people experience things, you're a support, you're a safe place for people to wrestle with even some of the things that they experience and um, providing that. One of the places where hopefully it's providing a positive support. Um, we've run out of time. Um, the, the Take Action card, there's three things on it. If you could just briefly tell us what those are. It's a newsletter, if you want to join the newsletter for Chris, um, the Good Neighbor Training, and the 5K. Huh. Um, so 
the newsletter is exactly what it sounds like once a month. We send out a newsletter with usually a spotlight piece that's very short and then a list of upcoming events and maybe some statistics from the past month. Um, good neighbor training is basically the conversation we just had, but for two hours or so, um, where we give a lot of information about what the refugee resettlement process looks like, um, what Chris's role is in that, what it looks like in central Ohio, and then we can give you op options about how to get involved with Chris. So if you're interested in volunteering with Chris or getting involved with our work and mission in some way, a good neighbor training is a good entry point because we'll give you that background information on how to do so. Um, the 5K, you talked about how can non-immigrants, non-refugees engage with uh, and learn about this community. The 5K is our biggest event of the year. Um, we have a lot of staff, we have a lot of clients who come um, and basically just celebrate the diversity of our community. So there's a 5K, you can run or walk it. I would say 50 to 60% of our people walk it. Um, we uh, also have an advocacy and education fair. So we'll talk about family reunification. We'll talk about what it means to advocate for family reunification, to advocate for um, humane refugee resettlement and immigration policy. Um, we'll talk about, you know, education, general answering of questions, interacting with Chris staff. What do you do? Why do you do that? Um, we'll have speakers. We'll have food from refugee-owned businesses. Last year, we had um, an Ethiopian restaurant show up with a full meal of injera and, and all sorts of delicious things. Um, so food from all over the world and just generally a really good time. So um, we can, we want to get you all involved with that. So name, email, check one of those three if you're interested and, and we'll get your information to, to Tyler and then he'll follow up with you, give you whatever details you need. Um, whatever, we just thank him for coming and being with us. Thanks so much. Thank you guys. Uh, invite the band to come up. <clears throat> Thanks, friends. I knew we'd go a little over today. Um, uh, not not too many minutes, uh, but uh, just two final things on the take action. Right below the information for Chris is the sanctuary church. One of the topics we were going to cover today, just weren't able to arrange. Uh, uh, but this is an opportunity if you want to meet someone who's living in sanctuary, hear their story, ask questions. Uh, there'll be a translator, and uh, Miriam will be making the meal, so we'll get an authentic meal from her. This will, I'm guessing, will fill up. So if you'd like to sign up, today's a good day to do that. Um, if it does fill up, um, we can invite a few more people than than 12, but we were trying to keep it small enough so there could be a conversation. So there's a checkbox for that that's separate from Chris. Okay, this is a, a you know, different heading. And then if you're just interested in Edwin and his progress, um, I can get you can contact with Avanza together as well as maybe even arrange a, a conversation with him if, you, if, if there's enough people interested. You can check that if you're interested in just kind of doing the next thing. The last thing I have is uh, Ben uh, Rule has, uh, and I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he can tell you more about it. You'll be in the back. He has shirts and signs that he sells and the proceeds, 100% of them go towards Chris. And Ben's uh, Ben and Molly are part of our community, and so just that's a logical tie-in. So he brought some, and you can see them. Um, you, you you can order them, and they'll come to you. But you can see what they look like here. Or if you want one of the yard signs, maybe you've seen people have 100% of those proceeds go to Chris. And so um, uh, Ben, if you just make yourself available back there, if anyone wants to hear more about how you got involved in that, you can do that. So uh, will you please stand with me and uh, let's pray. 
God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the chance to learn and for to ask questions and to um, become better acquainted. We thank you for your word and for the ways in which you challenge us, um, for sharing with us your heart uh, for the other. Um, help us to be a church that embraces um, the heart of God. In your name, amen.